0: So uh, Jennifer and Jared pretty much preached my sermon this morning, so I'm just going to go back and do it again. Um, we had uh, Friendsgiving, I guess, missional community Thanksgiving celebration earlier, and uh, one of the things that we ended up talking about was like movies that are Thanksgiving movies that kind of have that uh, Thanksgiving aesthetic, um, and then it also made me start thinking about like movies that people like to pretend are Christmas movies. I think the sound of music is one I will never understand as a Christmas music, uh, Christmas movie. Uh, but there is a, a, a song uh, that you guys probably are familiar with, uh, Doe, a deer, female deer. Okay. Well, it starts off, uh, start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. And, and that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start at the very beginning as we seek to understand the Advent story. Um, we, we all kind of get the idea, uh, if you have grown up in church at all, um, or, or, you know, haven't grown up in church, but have just showed up on Christmas, you, you have heard the story of Jesus being born. Um, but it all starts in Genesis. That's where it begins. And it's a really good place for us to begin this Advent season. Uh, looking, uh, We're going to really dig into chapter 3, but we're going to move around through 1 and 2. Okay, So one of the things that I want us to pay attention to is this question that is presented and that we have to answer for ourselves. It's given to Adam and Eve. I'm going to just kind of give away everything that I'm going to talk about right now. Um, And so if you check out right now, remember remember these things. The question that we need to, to be answering is, is God enough? Is his promise enough? Is he good? Is he really who he says he is? And so we're going to look at three separate things. We're going to look at the, the context for sin entering the world. We're going to look at the consequences of sin entering the world. And then we're going to see the cure for sin entering the world. And you probably know what that is. So looking at uh, the opening chapters of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, we're dealing with more than just a simple story. This is not a, a narrative that was made up. It's not a good story to tell people about how things got here. We're dealing with a historic event that determined the eternal destiny of mankind. Alistair Begg says about this that before there was time, before there was anything, there was God. God made the world. He made it for his glory. and He made it to help us know him, to love him, and to trust him. And this is the exact reason that you and I are here today. We have no other purpose but to glorify God. That is why we exist. And so we see that uh, in, in the first chapters of Genesis. We see in chapters 1 and 2 that God has created everything, and it is perfect for man to love and to trust God. God speaks and lights up the darkness. He fills the earth with life. He fills it with beauty. Then God makes Adam, and out of Adam's rib he makes Eve. And the two of them live together and were perfect for each other. And God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And the two of them walked with God and they knew him. That's a, that's a concept we, we do not understand. We walk with God, but we don't see him. they literally saw him. Don't know. My mind can't wrap around that, but that, that that's the image that we see in chapter one and two. The world that God created was good. And God provided everything for Adam and Eve to to enjoy life and to delight in. In the life that they were given, and to enjoy him. Life was fun and and full of joy and good things. In the garden paradise, God provided them. They had everything they could ever need. And in the garden, God gave them one restriction. They could enjoy all of God's creation and eat from any tree in the garden, except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they would die. This restriction from God was a test. Would they trust him? Would they obey him? This is the world that we read about coming into chapter 3. And the question that faced Adam and Eve in the garden is the very same question that you and I must answer today. Will you trust God? Will you trust his plan? Will you believe him and his word? Or will you believe whatever it is you want to believe? So let's look at chapter 3. Begins, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent, uh, one commentator said, is no ordinary serpent. He's real, but he's not ordinary. It's at this moment in scripture that we're confronted with evil, confronted with the, the problem of evil, Um, In this good and perfect world, God created the snake, which is the devil, has come. And we know it's the snake because of different uh, points throughout scripture where it refers to the serpent as Satan. This is where evil enters the world. And what we we often want to do is to stop and, and ask the question, well, how did sin enter the world? And by God's grace, I'm not here to answer that question this morning. Um, so you can, on your own, spend time doing that. That's, a, that's its own sermon. Um, the actual origin of evil is a mystery, and only God truly knows. But what we can know, we know. What we don't know, we need to leave alone this morning. But it forces us, again, back to the question, do we trust God? Do we trust him? So the snake has entered the story, and a conversation takes place between the snake and Eve. Verse 1 says, the serpent was cunning. And we see how cunning he is in the way that this conversation unfolds. The serpent is very selective in the way he words his question. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is called the deceiver. He's the father of lies, and here we see how he works telling partial truths to create doubt and unbelief in the heart of Eve and of Adam. He's tempting Adam and Eve to distrust God. Satan is telling them what he tells you and me. You think God is providing for you, but actually God is holding back. He's holding out on you. His plan really isn't good. He really doesn't want what's best for you. You can't trust him. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God. Satan wants us to believe that God's command is actually depriving us of good life, of enjoying life that his law keeps us from enjoying everything in this world. We may never actually think this way, but the way that we live our lives shows that that's what we believe. The reason we sin is because we doubt God's goodness. The reason that we rebel is because we think that the parameters God has set up for us are actually crushing us. My kids are allowed to play anywhere in the yard. They have toys to play with. They can run around. They've got a lot of space. They can do that. But the road is where they can get hurt. They're not allowed to leave the yard. My kids don't say to themselves, Self, I have everything that I need in this yard, but my father is keeping this really fun thing away from me in the road. And so I must shake off these shackles and cross the threshold that is the yard into the street in order to experience true joy. My three-year-olds do not say that. But what they do when they step across from the grass to the street, is exactly that. They're shaking off the restrictions that Emily and I have created for them that will keep them safe and keep them alive. Because they think they know what's better. And so they step out in disobedience. And you and I never mature from this line of thinking. You and I, in our sinful flesh, this is what we do every time we sin. God's way is not good. He does not know what's best. His plan is is wrong, and he's keeping something from me. And so I'm going to step out in my own wisdom to enjoy life more abundantly. The craftiness of the devil draws us to to the temptation to distrust God. And he appeals to Eve here in three different ways. He he appeals physically, emotionally, and mentally. Let's look at verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The fruit looks good to eat. It's physically appealing. Visually, it's pleasant and couldn't possibly kill her. It looks good. And the serpent said they wouldn't really die. desirable. Emotionally she wants it. She wants to reach out. She wants to take it and eat it. And then mentally, intellectually she sees that it's good for wisdom. It will make her like God. And that's a good thing, right? I want to be like God. I want to reach out. I want to take this. I want to be wise like him. He's holding that back from me. Eve is tempted and Adam follows along because they believed the lie from the serpent that they would not really die. There would be no consequences for their actions. They would continue to live life and would enjoy life more as a result of their rebellion. And that lie hasn't changed. The devil wants you to believe that you can push the boundaries of God's plan and you won't have to deal with any of the consequences. Romans 1 tells us that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that's the reality of of sin entering this world. We believe the lie that God cannot be trusted. And so Adam and Eve eat the fruit. And immediately you have the consequences. Let's look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. We see that the promise of Satan are just simply lies. Their eyes are opened and they knew they were naked, it says. So they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. Their eyes are opened and the first notable consequence that we see is that their relationship has broken. No longer do they feel the freedom and safety of being seen and known by each other they felt shame and a need to cover themselves. Their shame is not simply because they're naked, but because of their vulnerability. They've sinned, and they see each other, and they know. And so they need to cover that up. Their nakedness was a reminder that they were seen and known by someone, and that wasn't okay to them. And then they heard God walking in the garden, and they hid. It says that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. My kids uh, love to, to fight. They love to wrestle. We took, uh, I, think, I think it was Jennifer that I heard say this uh, to Tim, that he needs to go and ask, hey, you want to fight? We tried doing that with our kids, and it doesn't work out. Um, they just hit each other. And what inevitably happens is that Oliver will hit Finn harder than Finn wants, and Finn will cry. And Oliver, recognizing the the chaos that he has created, will, will run apologetically to Finn, hug him, and say, I am so sorry, brother. I have offended you. That's not what happens. He hits him immediately and flees. He runs out of the room and hides under his bed because he knows that what he's done is wrong. And he knows that justice is coming. And so he hides. And that's what Adam and Eve do. They hide. And you and I aren't as always as simple as that. We don't run and hide under our beds. But we cover it up. We want to make excuses for it. And we see that, we see that as well. Our sin like Adam and Eve leads us to cover ourselves and to hide. But God's response to us is the same as his response to Adam and Eve. Let's continue looking. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? God cut out to the man. That's important. Eve ate the fruit first. Adam was there with him, but God called out for Adam because he bears the responsibility. He's the one that's leading his family, and he failed. But God called out, and and him calling out is not because he didn't know. It's not because he was ignorant of what was going on. God knew, but in God calling out to Adam. We see God's love and his desire for restoration. We know this because Adam, after he sinned, should have instantly died. God could have instantly ended his life for his rebellion. But he comes after him. And it's important for us, I think, to understand that God isn't caught off guard by Adam and Eve. He's not caught off guard by by their sin. His plan is not messed up. God is never surprised by our sin, but he still comes after us. God called out to him and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he, God, asked Adam, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What we see happening here is God exposing sin. And he doesn't expose sin to shame you. He doesn't expose sin to shame Adam, but he, he exposes the sin that he might cover it. He reveals Adam's sin in order to forgive, but instead of repentance, we see blame. Adam is just the victim. Adam blames the woman, and he blames God. Let's continue looking. The man replied, the woman you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree. And I ate. Adam is saying here, the woman that you made, it's her fault. And and actually, now that I think about it, you created her, so it's your fault. You're the one to blame for all of this. You are a bad father who doesn't know what he's doing, and you gave a bad gift, and she messed things up. God doesn't immediately smite him for his words, but turns to Eve and says to her, So the Lord God asked the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And she also points away, blaming the snake. And in blaming the snake, she's blaming God's creation. So she too blames God. And then we begin to see God's just punishment for sin, starting in verse 14. First, God curses the snake. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you, ha- you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility, or some translations say enmity, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This curse on the serpent uh, is actually our greatest hope. And we, we read that this morning. Um, when uh, Jared and Jennifer lit the candle. And so we're going to come back to this later. But it's important to see that first, God curses the serpent. And then we see this promise that comes before the punishment on Adam and Eve. Next, we see the consequences to the woman. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So we see that the the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply will now come with pain. Women experience physical pain and childbearing. We know that. What happens to a woman's body as she carries a child is excruciating. Ligaments and joints are pulled and torn. Hormones are all over the place. And then you have the actual birthing process, which is Horrifying uh, for a man, I'm assuming, a, a woman. Uh, I'm assuming, I know, I was there. Um, it's, it's terrifying. But the, the pain of childbearing doesn't end when the child is born. The curse on, on the woman does not end here. Nursing a child and, 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 the, and the pain of raising a child and the suffering that a mother carries as a child grows into adulthood. All of that, the struggle. That is part of this curse. A mother carries a load that, as a father, I don't understand sometimes. That is part of this. Then we see the last part. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. That's what the CSB reads. I think the ESV translates it a little better. It says your desire will be contrary to your husband. And to understand this part of this, uh, this punishment we need to understand what is meant by the word desire. And so look at, if you have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. In chapter 4, God is confronting Cain about allowing the bitterness in his heart to take root. And at the end of verse 7, God says, It's desire, sin's desire, is for you, but you must rule or master it. The ver- this verse, chapter in chapter 4, and verse 16 in chapter 3, are very similar, and in Hebrew, the words are almost identical. Looking at this, we get the idea. When Genesis 4-7 says that sin is crouching at the door of Cain's heart, its desire is for him. It means that sin wants to overpower him. It wants to defeat and subdue him and make him a slave of sin. Then we go back to Genesis three sixteen, and we see the same meaning in the sinful desire of the woman. Piper, talking about this verse, says that when it says your desire shall be for your husband, it means that when sin has the upper hand in the woman, when sin has the upper hand, she will desire to overpower or subdue or exploit the man. And when sin has the upper hand in the man, he will respond in like manner and with his strength subdue her and rule over her. And I think it's really important to stop here and to say that this is a consequence of sin. This is not a prescription in the Bible for men to dominate women. I think it's been taught that at times. That we see that this is, this is how it should be. Because of this curse, woman needs to be under man. But note what Piper says and, and what the context of this verse is. This is a result of sin. In fact, brothers, the exact opposite is true. We are called to lay our lives down to love our wives. That involves sacrifice. Jesus laid his life down to lift up the church. The king became a servant. He came not with strength, but humility and meekness. And so we, men of the Crossing Church, single or married, ought to be known by our humility and meekness. But what's happening in this verse is that the relationship that was once perfect between man and woman is now... The context for a potential battleground. And there's tension there. And then God turns to the man. Verse 17. He said to the man, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from it, you are dust, and you will return to dust. The job that God gave Adam in the garden is now full of pain and struggle, and eventually will result in death. He will die and become a part of the garden that he helped cultivate. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. And the consequences of sin are so far-reaching. Nothing in this world has escaped this fracturing curse of sin. But the truth is that these consequences that are experienced everywhere are not eternal. We have a cure. And so let's go back and look at Genesis 3.15. This verse has been called the first gospel, the proto-evangelium is the fancy theological word. It's this verse that we see the cure for sin entering the world. I will put hostility or enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The curse upon the snake is actually a promise to Adam and Eve. There will be a seed or an offspring who will come from the woman and will one day crush the snake. This promise that was meant to be a curse in the snake is good. To them, they have to see that. When God says that there will be a seed from the woman, before they are punished at all, they must hear, Eve must hear, I'm not going to die. In order for there to be a seed, I must live. And we know that the seed is Jesus. Jesus is the cure for sin entering the world. Galatians 3.13 tells us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. That first advent, God, the son of man, the son of God, stepped down from his throne and entered our humanity. He wrapped himself in flesh and became a baby. Born in poverty, he lived a perfect life, experiencing all the effects in a sinful world, but he never once sinned. In his ministry, he he turned water into wine. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind, cast out demons. He fed the hungry and raised the dead. He called people to step out from the shadows and the fig leaves that they had created and to repent of their sin. In everything he did, he did no wrong. Not a single action, not a single thought or desire. He was perfect in everything that he did. And as he revealed to his people who he was, his people rejected him and falsely accused him of sin, of blasphemy. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. And Jesus was led to the cross to die. But he wasn't forced. John 10, 18 tells us, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have this right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. His death, like Galatians 3 says, we just read, was a substitute for our sin. He became the curse for us. He took away the curse by becoming the curse on the cross. Jesus laid down his life, but like we saw in John 10, he takes it up again. He did not stay dead because he is the only one who could conquer death. We see a beautiful example of this uh, in the theological work of J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Harry Potter is able to conquer death in the final book. By laying his life down for his friends and greeting death like an old friend. Harry walks towards death willing. And because of that, he is able to overcome death. He's not afraid of it. In a much better and a greater way, Jesus is the only one in history who should have never died. Because death, as Romans tells us, is a consequence for sin. And having never sinned, he should not have experienced those consequences. Yet he willingly lays his life down in order to conquer death so that three days later, like he says, he can raise it up again. And he's the only one who's able to do that. This is the cure for sin, promised in Genesis 3.15. We see that Adam and Eve could never, could have never seen. We get to see that. Jesus has come. Adam and Eve had a promise to hold on to. But we have seen it come and happen, but that promise for them was enough, and if you have grown up in church like many of us have, you have heard this so many times. Jesus is the way to salvation. He is your ultimate security. He takes care of your biggest problem, and that's true. We know that Jesus cures our ultimate need for salvation and eternal life, but what about the day in and the day out stuff of life? depression loneliness sorrow the sorrow of being single the heartache of marital struggle medical complications inadequate finances addiction betrayal being tired depleted distressed burned out exhausted burnt burdened over uh, extending yourself Stressed, anxious, overwhelmed? Is Jesus enough for that? Does he take care of those problems? And we've seen, as we've looked through Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came wrapped himself in flesh, experienced everything that you and I experience in life. Yet was without sin. And so he's able to look at you and I when we struggle in the day in and day out stuff of life and say, I've been there. I know. I know what that feels like. He hurts with you. Andrew Peterson has a song, Always Good. He he writes this line. It says, if it, it's true that you feel what I'm feeling, could it be that you're weeping with me? Yes. His heart breaks with you. The things that make you sad, the things that break you down every day. Jesus is with you and he is enough. Second Corinthians twelve, Paul writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness. So that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in my weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Beloved, Jesus is more than able to handle the full weight of everything you experience in this life. Every emotion that you feel. Every burden. All of our sin. He's able to carry that. It's not too much for him. And like God calling Adam in the garden, he is calling to you to be known by him. This is the salvation provided in the first coming. But we live in a world that still experiences the effects of sin. Romans 8, and 23 says, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, But we ourselves, who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We are so tired of this. I'm exhausted of the effects of sin. It hurts. Never in my life have I felt this more than I have the past few years, this groaning in my heart. And I'm not the only one. As I talk to people at the Crossing Church and people, people that don't even know Jesus, they feel this. This can't be all that there is. And so like Adam and Eve, we have to hold on to this promise. We've seen that Jesus has come. We, we have experienced the salvation of Christ on the cross, but we have not yet experienced him coming again and fixing all this mess. And can we do that? After Christ rose from the dead and appeared to the people, he ascended into heaven and promised he would return. All of creation is longing for that second advent. More often than not, we fail to live like this promise will come true. We long in our hearts, but we live like the world. this world is all that we have. And so I want us to come back to that question. Can God be trusted? And is his promise worth the wait? Have you ever wanted something so badly and then been let down when it, ever, when, it, when it actually happened? Like you've eagerly waited for a gift or a trip and it didn't work out like you wanted it to. That hope that you had was gone. Well, brother and sister, that is not the case for our salvation. And that is not the case for Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The hope we have in God will never put us to shame. We'll never be left wanting. Spurgeon writes that the, the enmity between Christ and Satan, that there, that there was enmity, hostility between Christ and Satan, for he came to destroy the works of the devil and to deliver those who are under bondage. To him. For that purpose we were born. He was born. For that purpose did he live. For that purpose did he die. For that purpose he has gone into glory. And for that purpose he will come again. That everywhere he may find out his adversary and utterly destroy him. And his works from among the sons of men. Will you trust that promise? Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that promise enough to share it? We saw, we prayed this this morning. We we lit the candle. There are thousands, thousands in this world who have yet to hear about the first coming. They don't have any hope. Do you believe this promise enough to go? To leave the comfort of home and go out and to share some of us struggle to share within the comfort of home. I'm one of them. Is he enough? Christian, we know how all of this ends. Will you give your life for this? Is it worth it? all the heartache with all the struggles with all the pain we experience in this life is Jesus enough and by God's grace all of us will make it to the end to say yes maybe you have never believed this maybe you're hearing this and your heart is stirred because something that i've said or something that we've sung or something that someone has prayed you have realized that you don't have that kind of hope. Will you believe it today? Will today be the day that you repent and believe? Because God is calling out to you. He's calling. He wants you to come out into the light, to not be ashamed of who you are and what you've done, because he knows. He's not surprised, and he loves you despite all of it. We're going to continue to worship and sing. We're going to take communion together. I just want to call you, brother and sister, to believe the gospel, no matter where you're at, to answer this question for yourself. Is Jesus enough? Is he worth carrying on for? As we have seen in chapter 12 of Hebrews last week, is he enough? Will you persevere to the end, Christian? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful, Lord, that you have given us a promise.